So, Father, we are grateful for our Bibles. And indeed, as we were reminded, even as we've just sung, that these words have come to us through great sacrifice and there's blood on every page. And thank you for the privilege of holding a reliable word in our hands. Father, we apply ourselves now to the hearing of the word and the study of the word together. May it, may it be part of our worship to sit still and to have a humble heart and to have ears to hear that we would surrender ourselves to the word and the will of God. Bless our dear brother as he opens the text for us. Now I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, it's very great to be with you this weekend. I had a great time with some of your folks yesterday. I look forward to ministering the Word and just being with you today and getting to know your congregation better. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, in a moment I'll be looking at this text with you, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and uh, verses 16 and 17. I will be using the New American Standard. The ESV is very similar, so I don't think you'll have any problem following both the great translations. But uh, I've been using the New American since I was at Moody Bible Institute back in the 1910s. And uh, it, uh, so I've stayed with it throughout my ministry. It's a great, uh, either translation is very good. So 2 Timothy chapter 3. You might have heard this story. Maybe your pastor's told you. I don't know, but uh, bear with me. Once upon a time, uh, a man took a walk and came to a bridge. And when he got to the middle of the bridge, he saw a man standing on the rail, obviously about to jump. The man was distraught, so he said, Don't jump, I can help you. How can you help me, asked the man on the rail. Well, the first man replied with a question of his own. Are you a Christian? Yes, I am. That's wonderful, so am I. Are you a Catholic or a Protestant? I'm a Protestant. Oh, that's great, so am I. What kind of Protestant are you? Are you Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, or something else? I'm a lifetime Baptist, said the man on the rail. Praise the Lord, came the reply, so am I. Let me ask you this. Are you a Northern Baptist or a Southern Baptist? Well, I'm a Northern Baptist. Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist or a Northern Liberal Baptist? <clears throat> I'm a Northern Conservative Baptist. Well, call Ripley's. That's amazing. So am I. Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist Fundamental or a Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed? Well, the man on the rail thought for a moment and then declared, My father raised me to be a Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed. It's a miracle, said the man. Put her there, pal. So am I. Then he asked, Are you a Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes Region? Or a Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Plains region. <clears throat> and the man on the rail said, that's easy. My family has always been a Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes region. This is a miracle of miracles. I don't often meet a brother who shares my, our, our own heritage. One final question. Are you, are you a Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes region council of 1855? Or a Northern Conservative Baptist Reformed Great Lakes region of 1872? And the man on the rail replied instantly, since the days of my grandfather, uh, our great-grandfather, we have always been Northern Conservative Baptist Reform Great Lakes Region Council of 1872. This statement was followed with an awkward pause. Looking up, the first man cried out, die, heretic, and he pushed him <laughs> off the rail. <clears throat> you know, sometimes it's hard to know where to draw the line. And that's true in ministry and it's true of the Christian life. But today I want to come to you uh, talking about where to draw the line in, tr in the area of truth and life. And that's found in the Word of God. And so we're looking at one of the great texts of Scripture. 
Uh, we're going to start with this, come back to it a little bit later on, and that's 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is the line in the sand. This is the line we draw in an area of life and truth, that which is found in the Word of God. If you were to study 2 Timothy a little closer, uh, you would find, and really look at it deeply, you would find that we have a man here who has served Christ faithfully for a long time. Uh, He's been one of the most faithful servants of the New Testament era, and yet, as Paul writes his very last epistle before uh, apparently the Lord would take him home, this is the last of his 13 inspired epistles, as he writes it, he's writing to a man that seems troubled and struggling. Uh, He's not leaving the faith. He's not turning his back on Jesus Christ. But he seems to be tired of many aspects of ministry. Uh, Perhaps, I think, he is considering perhaps dropping out of uh, the kind of service and ministry as a pastor and church planner that he's been involved with. We get hints over and over that he is discouraged. And Paul is trying to encourage him in the faith. And so as he does that to his, his friend Timothy... Uh, we, we see various issues laced throughout the chapter and throughout the book of uh, the things that he was facing. The false teachers are, are in the church. This is a first century church. And uh, the apostles were still around, but false teachers are everywhere in, in the world of Timothy. He's pastoring in Ephesus. Uh, they were siphoning off his people. And so a third of the book of 2 Timothy deals with false teachers and false teachings. Uh, chapter 2, verse 14, all the way through chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, uh, there's persecutions in the empire. The co-workers were abandoning the battlefield, as we'll find in chapter 4. The chief of the apostles was in prison and likely would be martyred for the faith. Internal struggles were going on in Timothy's heart and life. And uh, as a result of all these things, he seems to be down and struggling in ministry. Paul writes to encourage him. Paul wants to encourage him in the faith. He wants to encourage him in the work of Christ and I want to do the same today with you in, with the inspired text to encourage you in your walk with Christ and in your service for Jesus Christ as well. What does Paul do to encourage Pastor Timothy in his service for Christ? Uh, I, as I've, out, I've outlined this book in general form in my own teaching with, with five messages that Paul gives Timothy that uh, would encourage him in the faith. And we're not only going to look at one today, but let me quickly give you the other four. In the first eight verses, he tells Timothy that, he's, that a pastor and a servant of Christ, someone that really wants to live for the Lord, is in constant trouble. Now, you're never going to hear Joel Osteen tell you that. You're never going to hear a prosperity gospel tell you that. But the truth of the matter is you're fighting against the devil. You're fighting against the world system. You're fighting against the flesh. You're fighting against all sorts of things that are going to mean that you're going to be in constant trouble somewhere with somebody. And Paul does not pull his punches on that. The the second theme in the book is that the servant of Christ should center their ministry around the gospel. One of the greatest teachings on the gospel, how to be saved, is found in verses eight, verses 9 through 12 of chapter 1. And very few people ever turn here. Uh, so I encourage you maybe this afternoon to go and read those verses. We usually go to passages such as Ephesians chapter 2 to look for, at the gospel, Romans chapter 10. But we have one of the most perfect outlines of the gospel found anywhere in chapter 1. And Paul takes Timothy back to the gospel. You, you need to remember, Timothy, what it's all about. 
This is not just church services. It's not just music. It's not just getting together. It's not even doing Bible reading. It's the gospel. What Jesus Christ has done to save our souls. And he tells Timothy to, to center his ministry around that. And then, like I said before, in chapter 2, verses 14 to chapter 3, verse 13 or 14, he, he tells Timothy a third thing, and that is he needs to understand the dangers that surround him. We need to understand those dangers. We need not be gullible, naive Christians. We really need to know the struggles and the dangers that we face as, a, as the people of God. And then the fifth one, I'm going to skip the fourth one because I'm coming back. The fifth one is found in chapter 4, verse 6 to the end of the, ch of the chapter, where he talks about fighting the good fight. Friends, we fight many battles in this life. Life is a struggle often, and you know that. Many battles. But there's only one good fight, one excellent fight. And Paul says, I have fought that fight, and I encourage you, Timothy, to fight that fight. Now, the fourth message, the fourth theme in the book, and the one we'll look at today, is if you're going to be a true servant of Christ, if you're going to do it long term, not just a few weeks at a time, but, but you're going to do it throughout a lifetime, if you're going to really do it God's way, you must be absolutely convinced of the transforming power of the Word of God. Absolutely convinced that the Word of God changes lives. And that's what he wants to talk to Timothy about in what we're looking at today. Uh, he has been talking uh, before verse uh, 15 of 16 of chapter 3. He has spent this long section telling Timothy about the enemies and the dangers that he would have to fight uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's reminded him of those things. And then he turns at verse 14 of chapter 3 from talking about these dangers and these enemies to turning to that which is more positive, which is the Word of God itself. And he talks now about this transforming power. Now let me ask you this question. Do you believe in the transforming power of the Word of God? Not just in theory, but in reality. Do you believe the Word of God can transform your life, your family, your church? Do you really, truly believe that? Well, that's what he's asking Timothy. Do you believe that? And he gives us evidence, four evidence of those who truly believe that the Word of God transforms lives. Number one, if we believe that, we will value the Scriptures as a treasure. We will value it as a treasure. Go back to chapter 1. Look at verse 13 with me. <clears throat> he says in verse 13, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and in the love which is in Christ Jesus. Let's stop, let's stop there for a moment. If you value something, you take care of it, don't you? You protect it. If, if you have a diamond necklace, uh, you might put that diamond necklace in a fireproof safe to keep it safe from people stealing it or fire or whatever else because it's valuable. But you don't put a string of popcorn in a safe. It's not valuable. If you have children, you guard them. You don't let them go out in the street to get ran over by a car because you treasure them. You, you love them. But you don't mind the, the stink bugs going out in the street, do you? You, wouldn't, you could care less if they got ran over. Matter of fact, you want them to get ran over. You don't value them. You only protect that what you value. And Paul is saying here that, that as you look at your life, what do you value? And, and he says here, we, we, when we value God's truth, it's demonstrated by two actions. First of all, we retain the standard of sound words. 
in this verse. The word standard was a word that meant the imprint of a horse's hoof or the impression left by a seal or an engraved mark, a model, or something like that. The word implies a pattern that is always the same and should not be changed. Once in a while I take my grandchildren out into the woods that's near our house, something like the woods you have here, and I take them through the woods and we look for prints of deer, footprints of deer. And I want to show them what a footprint of a deer looks like. And if we find one, we know they're, they're nearby. We know they've been through there. And we also know, as I, tra- as I taught them, a deer print is very different than a dog print or, or a raccoon or, or something else. They're very different. They're very unique. There's a mark. You know it's a deer. And that's the word for standard here. The word of God is our standard. And notice he says, I want you to retain the standard. I don't want you to take the Word of God and add to it or change it or subtract from it. I want you to retain it. Here is the pattern that you are to live by. And that pattern has been given to you from me, the inspired Apostle Paul. The Holy Spirit gave it to Paul. Paul gave it to Timothy. He says, Timothy, you retain it. You maintain that. As he says later on, as Jude would say later on in his book, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Secondly, if you value God's truth, not only do you retain it, but you, but you guard it as a treasure. Verse, eight, verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Uh, treasure then is the sound words, and in this context he's saying it's in danger of being stolen. Now, even in this first century, we find all these false teachers popping up. And every one of them were trying to steal the Word of God and replace it with something else. And if that was true in the first century, think what it is like today. With the internet, television, medias of all sorts, blogs, whatever else you got out there. Tens of thousands of ministries and people who are trying to replace the Word of God with their own ideas. And so he says you need to guard it like a treasure because of the value that is there. But I want you to know one more thing in verse 14. He says guard through the Holy Spirit this treasure, this Holy Spirit that dwells in you. And so the ministry we have is not just us. It's not just behavioral modification. It's not just just some ritual. It is a ministry through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the fourth time already in this book that he's talked about the Holy Spirit and the power necessary for the Christian life with the Holy Spirit. Listen, the Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. No one can live the Christian life even relatively well without the power of the Holy Spirit. Never minimize that. Never never miss that. You need the Spirit of God to accomplish anything worthy of his name. Many years ago when my mother was still alive and we'd go visit her once in a while, whenever I'd visit her, she was about 200 miles away, uh, I always did some things to help her out. And one of the things I would do is mow the grass. My brother-in-law usually came over and mowed the grass for her, but I would do it while I was in to help him out and so forth. And uh, one year I mowed her grass. She had a brand new lawnmower. This was 20-some years ago. She had a brand new lawnmower, and I was out mowing the grass, and I wore myself out. 
I could not believe how tired I was when I got done. It was the hardest pushing lawnmower I'd ever seen in my life. And I just about died. And it was a hot summer day, 95 degrees, and, and I just came in wore out. And I told my mother, who, was, who had a number of health issues, I said, don't you ever try to push that lawnmower. You'll die. And so I was complaining about it all day. And my brother-in-law showed up later in the day, and he said, uh, and I was telling him how hard that lawnmower is. That's an awful lawnmower. Why in the world did you get that lawnmower from my mom? And he said, well, did you try the, in, to engage the automatic wheels, you know, the, the powertrain? And this is back when those were just coming out. And I didn't even know it existed. And so for the entire yard, I was pushing not only the lawnmower, but the powertrain. I never used the powertrain. No wonder I was wore out. Now, my brother-in-law had a good time with that. Uh, uh, I've, I've had education and training and schooling. My brother had done the exact same thing a month before. My brother is a, a PhD with, in, a Texas University professor. He did the exact same thing. My brother-in-law had never gone to school, so he says, you bunch of dumb, educated people. He, he, had, a, he had a great time with that. He was absolutely right. We had the wrong education for pushing lawnmowers. But my point is, I, I, I struggled so hard because I didn't use the power available in the lawnmower. And that's why we struggle so hard sometimes in our Christian life. We're, we're trying it on our own. We're going through the rituals. We're showing up at church. Maybe we're reading our Bibles in the morning, going through all the things, but it's a grind. And folks, you will know that you're not engaging the power of the Holy Spirit when the Christian life is just a grind. And so engage that power of the Spirit. That's what Paul calls him to do. If we are convinced of the transforming power of the Word of God, we'll tr value it like a treasure. Secondly, we'll see the ministry of the Word is worthy of sacrifice. Worthy of sacrifice. Chapter 2, he talks about this. And Paul is going to sandwich the inevitable sacrifice that accompanies ministry of the Word between two vital and essential strategies for ministry of the Word. Let me start with the cost. And here I find it very interesting. Here is a man, Timothy is depressed a bit. He is down. He's about ready to give up on some of the things he was doing for Christ. And instead of Paul coming alongside him and putting his arm around him and saying, okay, it's going to be okay. Just hang in there a little longer. You know, it, it's going to ease up. You're, going to, you're having a hard time now, but it gets better later. And, and all sorts of those kind of platitudes. He basically nails him to the wall and said, it's going to get hard. I thought, what a strange technique. But it kind of reminds me of what Jesus did. What did he tell his disciples? You want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? Deny yourself? Take up your cross? Follow me. Nothing easy there. What is the cost? Well, Paul does it differently. He gives us three illustrations that demonstrate the cost. First of all, you must be like a good soldier. Verse 2, verse 3. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. He said, starts with a soldier, and he said, the, 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 every soldier expects hardship. If you join the Marines, you don't expect a vacation and a picnic. You're going to sleep on the ground. You're going to eat lousy food. You're going to fight enemy that wants to kill you. Uh, it's going to be difficult. And so you must be single-minded. You must not get distracted, if you look at this text closer, by the things around you. You must seek to please the one who sent you out, like a good soldier. And it's going to be hard. A good soldier expects hardship. Second illustration is a successful athlete in verse 5. 
So also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Uh, the successful athlete had to compete according to the rules. In, in ancient times, first century, there, the athletes were required to go through a 10-month preparatory uh, regiment. They had to eat certain foods. They had to do certain exercises. They had to be involved in, in many different rules and so forth. And if they did not do that, they were disqualified. If you don't play by the rules, you, you, you'll lose the reward at the end. If you know anything about sports, you know that there's been some uh, world-class athletes who will never win the ultimate prize because they broke the rules. Pete Rose, the most prolific baseball hitter in all of history, will never be in the Hall of Fame because he broke the rules. Barry Bonds and, and uh, Mark McGuire were the, two of the greatest long ball hitters the game has ever seen, but they'll never be in the Hall of Fame because they broke the rules. Uh, Lance Armstrong, the greatest bicyclist ever, will, had to give back his reward awards because he broke the rules. You break the rules, you don't win the game. God has boundaries that he set. This is, Christian life is not up to us, it's up to him. And so when we sit down to play any game, we know, need to know the rules. You ever sit down with somebody to play a game of cards? I, I have a group that I play Rook with. If you don't know what that is, you don't need to know. Uh, or Monopoly or something like that. And if, you, if you're wise, you sit down with these people and you say, now what are the rules? Because everybody has made up their own rules. If you notice that? Everybody plays Monopoly differently. Everybody plays Rook differently. So you sit down, what are the rules here? You've got to do that before you start the game. A successful athlete knows the rules and he keeps them. He knows God's boundaries. Third, thirdly, he's a hardworking farmer. Verse 6. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Well, the characteristic of a hardworking farmer is hard work. Uh, it, the, the word means to grow weary. You ever grow weary serving Christ? Ever get exhausted? If you don't, you don't really, really understand service for Christ. It ought to cost something. It, it is awesome, uh, often will take much of your energy and much of your time. And for the hardworking farmer in the first century, it was not a glamorous life. They didn't have air-conditioned cabs in their, tra their tractors. They worked all day in the hot sun with a hoe or a plow. It was hard, hard work. And at the end of the day, nobody cheered them. Nobody gave them a victory parade. They simply came home, but at the end of the, of the harvest, when the harvest came, had they worked hard, they, they would expect a good harvest. And so he says that same thing to Timothy. If the soldier has a single-minded devotion, and the athlete plays by the rule, the farmer works hard. Should the Christian, let me ask you, should the Christian be any less dedicated than a farmer or an athlete or a soldier? I don't think so. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Some of you, probably all of you know of Michael Jordan, probably the greatest basketball player that ever lived. And he wrote a book called Driven From Within. One day he was out, he tells a story in that book, uh, he was out with a friend named Fred Whitfield, and they were running around, and that evening they wanted to go somewhere to eat that required a jacket. He didn't have one, so they went back to Whitfield's apartment to get a, get a jacket. And when he opened Whitfield's closet, he saw two kinds of clothes. Whitfield was a friend of the big athletes. On one side of, clothes, of, the, of the closet had Nike clothes, which is what Jordan represented at the time. The other side of the closet had Puma 
clothing, which was Ralph Sampson's mark, which is another friend of this guy. According to the story, Jordan took out all the Puma clothing, laid it in the store floor, got out a butcher knife and cut them up, threw them in a dumpster and said to his friend, don't you ever do wear anything but Nike. You can't ride the fence. Now that's dedication, isn't it? Don't do that with your friends, by the way. That, that won't work well for you if you're not Michael Jordan. But what dedication is that? That was his whole point. Should not we be as dedicated to Christ as any athlete is to their, to their game? I think we should. And so Paul is talking now about these things. Now, he, he, as he does so, he now moves on from the cost to the strategy. Okay, it's going to cost us to serve Christ. But if we're willing to pay the price, how should we go about doing it? Two strategies that he gives us. First of all, we might call the method in verse 2. He says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. What has been entrusted to Timothy? Well, the sound words of chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. How is Timothy to propagate that treasure? He is to retain it, he is to guard it, and he is to pass it on to other faithful men. I think this is the definition of how to make disciples. You'll find in the epistles, you don't never find the word disciple, though Jesus told, her to go, told us to go out and make disciples. It doesn't use the word, but it gives the description, and this is one of the best. Here is what it is to make disciples of Christ, or at least how to go about doing that. But I want to suggest to you, and I don't know much about your church, getting to know your pastor better, really enjoyed our fellowship, getting to know a few of you. But if your church is like my church, and like most good Bible churches, we spend far too much time chasing after Christians who don't want to live the life than discipling the ones that do. Our elders spend far too much time, I'll be honest, discussing, dealing with, ministering to people that we're just trying to get to come to church once in a while. Just show up, you know. People that really don't want to go on for Christ are never going to get the job done. And we should minister to those people, don't get me wrong. We're always going to minister to them. We're always going to be there for their funerals. We're always going to love them. We're always going to work with them when they're hurting. We love them. We'll minister to them. That's nothing wrong with that. We need to do that. But I suggest to you that the bulk of our attention should go to those who are faithful, who want to work for Christ, who want to serve Christ, and who want to pass it on to others. That's what he says in verse 2. That's what he tells Timothy to do. You spend your time with faithful men. That word's generic word in the Greek for men, people. Faithful people who will be able to take that on and spread it to other people. That's the example Jesus gave us, isn't it? He, he spoke to many crowds and many people and all sorts of people, but he spent most of his time with 12 men, discipling them for Christ. And we must learn how to pass the baton to the next generation. Races are won or lost, the relay races, in the passing of the baton. Remember a number of years ago at the Olympics? When we had the, the men and women, with the uh, American men and women relay teams were the best in the world. Nobody could touch us. And in both cases, they dropped the baton and, and finished out of the medals. They were, they were the best, but they failed because they didn't pass the baton. We are in the business of passing the baton to the faithful people. 
Second strategy is verse, four, verse 15, uh, where he says this. The first strategy is the method you, you minister to these faithful people who will pass it on to other faithful people. The second strategy is the means. How do you do that? What are you passing on? Verse 15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. It does little good to claim that you hold to the word of truth and to the sound words if you don't teach it properly. Much of Bible teaching and Bible studies and, and small groups uh, kind of remind me of the, those psychological ink block tests. You know those, the Rorschach tests? They, they hold up an uh, ink blot. You know, you've seen this on television or whatever. They hold up an ink blot, and they, the psychologist says, what does that look like to you? And they tell you there's no right answer or no wrong answer. Just what does it look like to you? Now, if you get enough really bad answers, they'll probably put you away. But they tell you there's no right or wrong. And so you come up with whatever you think it means. And an awful lot of Christians think that's what you do with the Bible. There's no right or wrong. There's, there's many interpretations of Scripture and, and the different text. And so we just come up with what it means to you. And quite frankly, it doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what it means to God. And our job then is not to come up with fanciful interpretation, but verse 15, we are to accurately handle the word of truth. Probably most of you know that term, accurately handling, is a term mean, that means to cut it straight. Cut straight the word of God. And, that, and that's not always easy, folks. That's why he tells him to be diligent in accomplishment of that. Have you ever tried to cut a board absolutely perfectly straight? Uh, a number of years ago, I wanted to do uh, something that would, uh, so I could relax a little bit, get a little bit. So I took up golf. Bad choice. <laughs> if you want to relax and unwind, don't take up golf. It was awful. So I went to woodworking. And I got a bunch of equipment and started making some stuff. And, and I, I did some things. I thought of one simple thing I could do that was fairly quick was to make picture, picture frames with 45-degree angles. I thought that looked simple enough. But you know what I found out? It's virtually impossible to cut a perfect 45-degree angle. So I cut, especially eight of them, you know. So, so I cut them up. And I, had, I was going to start out with a picture frame like this. And I cut them up. And... They, they didn't fit. They were lopsided. So I put them on my belt sander and sanded them down and put them together. They still didn't fit. I kept doing that. Finally, I had a picture frame about that big. You know? It was hard to cut it straight. It really was. You know, often it's hard to cut the Word of God straight. But that's what He calls us to do. And that takes hard work sometimes. And so He tells Timothy here, look, you put these strategies together. We accurately handle the Word of truth. We cut it straight. And then we pass it on to faithful people who will also cut it straight. And they will pass it on to other faithful people who will also cut it straight. Who will pass it on to other faithful people who will also cut it straight. And the reason you're here today is because people have done that. 22, 21 centuries later, we're here knowing Christ, loving his word because somebody obeyed this. Aren't you glad about that? And we are to pass the baton to the next generation. I need to move on. If you're convinced of the transforming power of the Word of God, uh, you'll be uh, willing to, uh, uh, you'll value it as a treasure. You'll be willing to dedicate your life to teaching it. Thirdly, you'll make Scripture your focus. I want to go to chapter 3 now. You'll make Scripture your focus. Look at verse 14. 
as he turns Timothy away from the false teachers, said, I, I want you to know about the false teachers, but I don't want you to focus on them and their false teachings. I want you to focus on something else. Verse 14, you, however, continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. I want to turn you back to that which you've learned from me, the inspired apostle. And so now he is turning him back to the scriptures themselves. And he says here that the scripture has value in two basic areas. First of all, salvation. Secondly, sanctification. Start with salvation. Verse 15. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He had a faithful mother and a faithful grandmother who, who taught him the word. And one day when Paul came to town, apparently, he came to Christ through the ministry of the gospel. And so the scriptures bring us to Christ. Now let me say this, although there's a lot of rhetoric out there that's wrong today about this, you're never going to come to Jesus Christ while you're fishing and looking at the sunset. You're never going to come to Jesus Christ because you had a dream or a vision. You're never going to come through Christ through any other means except the Word of God. Somebody's got to tell you the gospel or you've got to read it in the Word itself. Now you may come to Christ while you're fishing, but it's only because you already knew the gospel. Somebody has shared that with you. And so he says here, the scriptures are what lead us to salvation. Secondly, they lead us to sanctification. This, this classic verse, verse 16, all scriptures inspired by God. He says, that means it's God-breathed, it's God's word, it's not our word. And it's profitable for four things. Teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And that means, folks, that every time we open the Word of God to study it and to teach it, one of those four things should be on the agenda, if not all four. Could be one, two, three, or four, but they all are on there periodically. That's what the Word of God does. It is profitable for teaching. It teaches us how to live life. Did you know that your brain is, re is, is wired wrongly? You are born with a, a, a brain that's wired wrong. And only the Word of God rewires your brain to think God's way, to live God's way. We are transformed, Romans 12, by the renewing of our minds. And so it teaches us that which is true. It reproves us. It tells us when we go astray, when we're going the wrong direction. It, it says, no, no, wait a minute. You're going the wrong way. It reproves us. But it doesn't just say we're wrong. It corrects us. It says, now here's the right way to go. Here, here, we don't just tell people they're wrong. We say, now, here's the way to go. Here's, here's the way to live. So we have these put-on, put-off principles in Ephesians chapter 4 and other places. Here's what you put off. Here's what you put on if you want to grow in Christ. And then finally, it's training in righteousness. As we do this over and over and over, we're trained to live God's way. When I was in high school, I was a wrestler. And in, and in practice, we went through the same uh, routine and, and same drills over and over and over and over. We were being trained, so when we got on the mat, we automatically did it. And the Word of God is training us to do that. What is the result of this kind of ministry of the Word, verse 17? So that the man of God, the person of God, again, generic word, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Adequate, equipped. 
Adequate is capable, proficient. Equipped uh, means finished or complete. This is a cool word, this word equipped. It is used in the Gospels to talk about mending nets. Nets with holes in them don't catch many fish. They have to be equipped, mended. And that's the word. He, he says we're dealing with lives that are, have holes in them. Spiritual holes. And they can only be mended, only equipped by the Word of God. And when the Word of God is done with His work, we're adequate for every good work, not just some, all. All the things that God wants us to do and live in His life, uh, our life for Him. But we have to apply the Word to our lives. We have to apply the Word to our lives. Some of you know uh, John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you have read that. I, I mentioned this illustration in my church uh, recently, and one of the gals didn't know who John Bunyan was. She thought he was Paul Bunyan. So if that's who you think it is, you learn today that it's not. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress and Holy War, two, great, two of the great classics. There's a museum in England that Ravi Zacharias, an apologist, was visiting. He wanted to see this museum dedicated to Pilgrim's Progress and John Bunyan. Uh, it, Pilgrim's Progress has been translated in more languages than any other book in the world except for the Bible. And when he left the museum, he was in awe. And he talked to the ticket uh, gal at the, at the booth there and said, isn't it amazing that this guy, who all he had as an education was how to mend pots and pans, wrote this book that has radically changed so many people. And she said, I guess so. I've never read it. He said he about fell on the floor. He said, you, you work at a place that is dedicated to this book and this man, but you've never read the book? Why not? Eh, I just never got into it. He said, that is, that is impoverishing yourself. Self-induced impoverishment. Here you work here at this museum, dedicated to a book that you purposely choose not to read. We are Christians. We are shaped by the Word of God. Are we apply, reading it and applying it to our lives? If we don't, we can talk all we want to about how much we love the Word. But are we letting the Word shape our lives? One last thing we don't have time to get to today is that if we were really believe in the transforming power of the Word of God, we'll center our lives and ministries around the proclamation of it. And that's found in chapter 4, where Paul tells Timothy, preach the Word. Preach the Word, chapter 4, verse 2. Proclaim God's Word. Take people back to the source of God's Word. You may have heard this story. It's probably not true. Steve Brown, a famous pastor in Florida, tells this story about Einstein that I really find hard to believe, but maybe it's true, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Uh, back when, when Albert Einstein was not so well known, he just came out with his theories, he was making the circuits from one university to the next, telling people about his theories. But nobody knew what, knew what he looked like, nobody knew much about him, but he was going every week. He had a chauffeur that drove him to each of these gigs. And at the end of uh, uh, many, many times, he'd done his exact same lecture, Dozens of times, the chauffeur was getting tired of hearing it. <clears throat> and so uh, he said uh, to the Einstein, he said, I've heard that so often, I could tell that lecture as well as you could. And so Einstein challenged him, okay, we're going to a university next weekend. They don't know what I look like. They don't know who I am. We'll change clothes. And you go up there and give my lecture. And the chauffeur got up and gave the lecture word perfect. No problem whatsoever. Just as good as Einstein. But he didn't count on one thing, the question and answer session at the end. And so the president of the school gets up, anybody has a question? And there's always the, some kid on campus that wants to stump the professors, you know. And he stands up and he asks the just profound, difficult question. 
The chauffeur had no answer at all, but he was very quick on his feet. He said, he paused for a moment and said, that's the stupidest, simplest, silliest question I've ever heard. I can't believe they even let you come to this university. I can't believe this school will allow you to come here. That is so simple, I'm going to let my chauffeur answer that question. I don't know if that's a true story or not, but I tell you what, the guy knew who to go to. He took the person back to the source. I don't have a lot of answers, but I know where the source is, and so do you. Let's take them back to the source. Well, Gary, thank you. You've challenged us to be in the book and students of the Word, and that's our middle name, isn't it? Fellowship Bible Church. And I trust that you've been encouraged. I was thinking as well, um, now he's been at it longer than I. I've been in Matthew like four and a half years. He does the whole book of Second Timothy in one sermon. So I'm going to have to learn how to do that one of these days. Will, will you stand with me, please? And let's just bow our heads and let's just uh, commit ourselves to the Lord for another week. Let's um, remind ourselves of the priority of the Word of God. Humble ourselves uh, and ask God to help us always be committed to His Word. It's through obedience to the Word of God that we live out the will of God. And so, Father, thank You for this good lesson today. Thank You for Your servant in our pulpit. And as we just remind ourselves of Paul's final letter to Timothy of the priority of being men and women of the book, of letting the Word of God transform us, its sanctifying power, and we recognize, Lord, that it's one thing to talk about it, it's another thing to know it. And so would you help us to dis discipline ourselves unto godliness, help us to be faithful in our reading of the Word, our, our memorizing of the Word, and walking in obedience to your Word. Father, just remind us and prompt us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit now this week uh, that we would always be your faithful servants, growing in grace. Bless Pastor Gilly, bless the Southern View Chapel, even as they're gathering right now there for their worship service. We thank you for this good weekend of study of the Word, and we commit ourselves to you for another week. In Jesus' name, amen.